Um, kids, I know you've, you're not going out to kids' church today, but this, will be, this is a fine line between bribery and reward, okay? You can decide what it is. But if you are in primary school, I, I think that this message you could get a lot out of. So if you are in primary school and you would like to take some notes today while I'm speaking, after the service, the first, I think I've only got five, five left. After the service, the first five people to come and show me their notes that they've taken during the message, only for those in primary school, I've got a reward, bribe, whatever for you, okay? So you can take, take a bit of note of what I'm saying today because I'm sure that you will understand. I just want to vouch for... Um, what Dave said in regards to Dan. Appreciate Dan. Just if you do know of anyone or any female that's 21-ish and you think would be good, he would be a good catch, okay? He really would. I'd vouch for that. So if you know anyone, come and see me. Come and see Dan. Yeah, they, they would be very pleased with that. Um, I so just wanted to make mention Jonathan and Marilyn. I just am so, I was watching you today, just especially during the offering. Didn't that sound good? I could just hire them to play in my house every day. It just sounded beautiful and I really appreciate you stepping in today. They have busy lives as doctors and schedules and things like that to juggle around being on the worship team, but you took time to step in for us today. Really grateful, it just sounded beautiful. Thank you. Great couple. So that expression, sorry, not sorry. Have you heard of that? Sorry, but not sorry. Um, Kat Jensen introduced me that, to that saying during work and it sort of has stuck in my brain. What it is, is saying sorry, but you don't really mean it. For instance, sorry I ate that piece of chocolate cake, yet it was so yum, so sorry, not sorry. Sorry I was late for a meeting, but I was having coffee with my best friend. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry I laughed when your foot connected to the end of the bed. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I am sorry, yet I can't be held accountable for anything I did or said while I was hungry. <laughs> I like that. Sorry, not sorry. There was a time when I was a child that I remember this, and it was a bit of a sorry, not sorry moment. We used to go to the dairy to get milk back in the day, and um, you could buy it from the shop then, just saying, we did have supermarkets. But we lived on a farm, and so there's a dairy nearby, so then we had this big tub that would go to the dairy, go into the big vat, and scoop the milk up to put it into this big tub. And this tub belonged in our fridge, and I decided one day I wanted a cup of Milo, so I asked my sister to make one, and I can't remember whether she just said no or couldn't, or I got impatient, but I decided at seven, eight years old that I was big enough to go and get this tub myself. Now, my mum had said, no, you need to wait, but I was pretty determined, pretty stubborn, so I went to the fridge and grabbed this big tub, and of course, something happened there, and people who know me, I can tend to be a bit clumsy, and I think it started way back then. Milk went everywhere. It was like this huge two to four litre tub, I can't remember how big it was, but milk just went all over the kitchen floor. It looked like a swimming, swimming pool of milk. I was freaking out and I was getting a bit teary, but then my sister just said the, the one-liner of, don't cry over spilt milk, which, which sent us in reels of laughter. And my mum was not impressed at all. And, I said, sorry, mum, but not sorry, because it was my sister's fault anyway, and, and it was pretty funny. So it was a sorry, not sorry moment. 
When was the last time that you said sorry for your actions or for your words, yet it really wasn't that much of a sorry? Or do you know have someone that said sorry to you and you question how sorry they really were? This can also be called a non-apology apology. Have you heard of that? A non-apology apology. And I looked it up and it says it's a statement in the form of an apology that does not express remorse. And it actually said it is common in both politics and public relations. I found that pretty funny. Sorry, not sorry. How do you go about saying sorry? That true sorry. Can you humble yourself, put yourself in that position or even in that stance that says, I was wrong, would you please forgive me? Easier said than done, hey? I think one thing I've noticed about saying a true sorry means you have to put yourself in a position that's vulnerable. It can take humility. Well, it takes humility. It may even be at a risk in regards to how people are going to respond to your apology. It may mean sacrificing your reputation or putting yourself in a risk or a place to risk judgment. This isn't easy, especially when it comes to ones who are close to you, don't you think? It's hard to say sorry to those who are close. So I ask again, how do you go about humping yourself and saying sorry, being truly sorry to those you have wronged? family, friends, or God. When Jesus was on earth about 2,000 years ago, one of the ways that he would communicate to those around him was through parables. He'd tell a story, just a basic story, using everyday things, everyday things that were familiar to the listeners, then he'd use the story to illustrate a profound biblical truth, a life-changing truth. Jesus had the most extraordinary words of life, And they weren't just for those in the Bible times, were they? They are for us as well. These stories are relevant to us. And we can take on those truths to put into our lives now. And we are taking a few weeks to look more closely at some of the stories of Jesus. So today we're continuing the series of Mud, Sticks and Stones, Stories Jesus Told. We're going to look and see what it means to be truly, desperately sorry. We're going to see a truly repentant person, what that looks like and how Jesus responds when he comes across such a heart. We're going to see that genuine humility brings extravagant forgiveness. So perfect humility or repentance, the word repentance, we don't hear much about that these days, do we? We we might get some negative connotations with that. Let's take a look at this picture Repent sinner, that's often pictures like that come to mind when we hear of the word repent, or the next one, repent, hellfire, damnation, all those sorts of words. It may evoke those negative connotations, which I think comes from those times when this word repentance has been used negatively. You like that? But repentance actually means turning around. It means to do a full 180 degrees. It means you're going in one direction, but then you do a full 180 degree turn and turn the other way. So repentance isn't actually a horrible word. It's actually a beautiful word. 
And the story we're going to look at today is we see the result of one woman's repentance. She was once living a life of sin and pain, yet she did a complete turnaround and received extravagant love, forgiveness, and freedom. So repentance isn't this harsh, horrible word. It's actually a beautiful word when we see repentance in action. So we're looking at the story, if you haven't already guessed, of the woman with the alabaster jar. Now there are four books that tell this story, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. They all tell that same story. Well, we believe it's the same story, but we're looking at the one in Luke. Now there is a little bit of question about who this person, who this woman is in Luke. In the other accounts, it, it talks about it being Mary. But in, in Luke, it doesn't actually say the name of the woman. And there's a few little differences in this account that makes commentaries or um, researchers question of whether this woman is actually Mary or not. But today, we're not going to focus on who it is, the name of this woman. We're going to focus on her heart because it is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of repentance and a true sorry. So we're looking at the repentance of a sinful woman, but we're also looking at the extravagant love and forgiveness of Jesus. And it's just beautiful. And seeing that genuine humility brings extravagant forgiveness. So let's take a look. We're looking in the book of Luke, as I said. Now the Lord Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to dine with him at his house, and Jesus obliged. So while he was there, this unnamed woman known only as a sinner in the city where she lived, went to Christ with an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and did what no one ever had thought of doing before. Let's read. You find this account in your Bible in Luke 7, reading from 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster, um, alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So here we have a woman who is recognised as a sinner by others. Now we don't know what kind of sinner she was. And I don't know whether you've realised this or picked this up, but so often when we read woman and sinner together in the Bible, our thoughts immediately go to a woman of the night. You know, we really immediately think that. But we don't really know. That's, that's just, I guess, assumed. There is no direct reference to this in this particular passage. Yet the point is she was a known sinner. She obviously had heard about Jesus. She knew where he was going to be. And because she had a deep belief and an understanding of who he was, it then gave her a deeper understanding of who she was, a sinner, unworthy, unworthy of coming face to face with him. So she came in from behind with a posture of a servant. As Jesus reclined at the table, in those days they would recline, most probably lying on, on his side, she bravely and with determination made her way discreetly to Jesus. I can only imagine that broken heart that she carried with her, one full of pain as she recognised her unworthiness. All she could think to do was to sit at Jesus' feet and offer all she had 
Tears flowed as she kissed his feet and used her hair mingled with the tears to wipe away the dust and the dirt. Then she sacrificed something precious, an alabaster jar of fragrant oil to pour and wipe over Jesus' feet. In this culture, it was often seen as forbidden for a woman to even touch a man, let alone touch his feet, pick up his feet and wipe it with her tears and with her hair. She dared to hold the feet of Jesus in her hands and spread the oil across his ankles and toes with her hair. What a moment. I believe if I was present, it would just literally take my breath away. There were others watching in the room in this, with this exchange and the response of the Pharisee shows us the vulnerable position that she placed herself in, a position where judgment and ridicule was very possible. Reading on from verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Now, this is where Jesus moves into the parable. It's using something that the people present would know about to explain and demonstrate a profound truth. Verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. They owed 500 denarii and the one owned 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Tell me, therefore, which of them would love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Now, this made me think of if um, Alistair and I decided to give one of our children $50 to go towards a new car and another one $500 to go to a new car. And they both bought a new car and both crashed it and couldn't give us back the money won the 50, won the 500, and we just said, don't worry, neither of you have to pay me back. Just, just let it go. So who's going to be the most grateful? The one with the 500 debt, hey. And it's like this in the parable. Both men were let off the hook. Neither had to pay back the loan regardless of the amount. So the one who no longer had to pay back the largest amount was deemed the most grateful. So Jesus said to Simon, tell me therefore which of them would love the lender more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman was not, has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Jesus was making it very clear to Simon. I wonder if it sunk into Simon's head, do you think? Oh, he's talking about me. Do you think that would have clicked? I'm not sure. But Simon may have done the outward-lived thing. He, he was a Jew. He would have followed the rules quite devoutly. 
But it was the woman, although she had sinned much, she was forgiven much because of her humility and her love for Jesus. Jesus didn't hold back, did he, in pointing out those differences. Let's look very briefly at Simon the Pharisee. When we look at Simon's behaviour and responses, we can see clearly that he was extremely judgmental, he was prideful, and he was sceptical. He was judgmental towards the woman because he pointed out her sin. So here she was, she came in and he focused on her sin. He focused on the fact that she was a sinner. That was where his thinking went, that was what he was focusing on. So his attitude was quite judging. And because he said, what manner of woman this is who is touching him for he is a sinner. That was his focus. Simon the Pharisee was always also prideful. He was full of pride. That means he had a high opinion of himself. And, And we see this because he didn't even offer Jesus the opportunity of water to clean his feet. The Pharisee, what Jesus said, he gave him no kiss of welcome. This was an expected traditional greeting. And yet he did not do that. He did not anoint Jesus' head with oil. Again, a sign of respect, as one would expect a guest in those times. They were all signs of pride and arrogance. He saw himself as greater than Jesus, as more important. The Pharisee was also sceptical. He was sceptical towards Jesus for who he was. For the Pharisee says in verse 39, this man, if he were a prophet would know what manner of woman this is who is touching, touching his feet, if he were a prophet. So he recognised Jesus as a teacher, he said as much, but he didn't recognise that he was a prophet or even the son of God. And then he said around to those at the table, he said, when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, Simon even said, who is this who even forgives sins? So he didn't have the understanding of who Jesus really was. So he was sceptical. This is the kind of man the Pharisee was. So let's turn our attention to the woman. I I see her as the heroine of the story. Other than Jesus, of course, the Son of God. But this woman, I just love the beauty of her heart. And I just see her as the heroine. Genuine humility. Firstly, the woman gave vulnerably. Talk about a vulnerable moment, don't you think? She chose to put herself in that room inside the house of a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were these religious leaders known for their strict adherence to the law. They were members of an ancient Jewish sect, distinguished by following that tradition, traditional and written law. They thought themselves pretty good because they did the right thing. Yet this woman, as sinner as she was, she chose to put herself into that home, into that environment. That is a really vulnerable position to put yourself in, isn't it? Very, very, very difficult. She made herself like a servant. As I said earlier, it, it was believed she came in from behind. She made herself vulnerable. And we can know her repentance was sincere as she didn't let any of the opinions of others or the perceived opinions of others deter her. She showed that genuine humility that brings extravagant forgiveness. The woman also gave sacrificially. She gave up something precious. 
Verse 37 says, She bought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed her feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, alabaster is a pure mineral that's actually soft enough to carve. And in museums, you'd likely to have find them made into statues or vases or intricate carvings. And the root of, the ab- of alabaster in the Greek means perfume vase. So it's made for perfume that could go into it. Alabaster is usually white, lightly coloured and translucent, which I find quite fascinating. It can have a translucent quality about it. It seems to light from within, as though it glows. It's a soft stone that can also be porous. So as people would wear them or carry them around with them, the fragrance would come come through. It, I liken it to, you know, those little containers with the perfume and the musk, you know, the, sorry, the reeds that come out, the little sticks, um, that fragrance that just permeates. You might have them in your house somewhere. So it just permeates around So the fragrant and also the oil. We don't know for sure what kind of oil this is. We kind of guess because it's been kept in an alabaster vase. I don't think it would just be plain olive oil. It's probably a fragrant, um, beautiful aroma. And these oils often were ointments, anointing oils and incense. They're often used for religious purposes, for health even, for personal pleasure, cosmetic. They could even have been used for burial. We could probably relate to the significance of this sacrifice as if I use my favourite Chanel to sort of pour over someone's feet as they came to visit me. Ah, (laughs) I don't think I could do that. But the fragrant oil and the beautiful alabaster vase or jar was indeed a precious, precious gift. And she chose to sacrifice that onto the feet of Jesus. Genuine humility. Genuine humility is sacrificial. And she was willingly giving that to Jesus. The, the last thing that this woman displayed was personally. She gave personally. Her attention was only on Jesus, between Jesus and herself, as though everything faded in, into insignificance. I, it makes me just think of those shots in the movies where they do that camera trick you know they zoom in on the person and everything else is just a wash or out of focus but the person is in focus and I just love that I just feel like that was what she was doing she wasn't thinking of the people she wasn't thinking of the judgment that was coming her way yet it was a very personal act so personal she was weeping using her hair to wipe his feet, and she kissed his feet. Such an intimate act, isn't it? To understand how personal this act is, it helps to understand the significance of the woman using her hair. At that time, it was actually a bit of a no-no to even show her hair. In some Jewish circles and customs, even today, held today, it can be seen as shameful for a woman to show her hair in public. And this was because the hair was seen as such a beautiful and personal feature, it is only meant for the husbands to see. It is a sign of modesty. And with the head covering, it's like saying, I am married and not available. This is only for my husband. The idea isn't to hide their beauty, yet to channel it into the right direction. 
beautiful picture of her displaying her hair and using that on Jesus' feet. It was a picture of commitment and devotion, just between her and Jesus. At the moment, my mum is not well. She's, um, she hasn't got that much longer to spend with us. And you may or may not have known, I've been doing a couple of trips to South Australia. We're actually heading off again today after the service. But one of these moments as she was in hospital, she'd broken her wrist. And um, it was really difficult to get some time alone with her, just with family and people visiting and the doctors and the nurses coming in. But she had a little bit of pain on her wrist and by the, next to her bed, she had a bottle of hand cream. So I thought, well, I'm just gonna spend a bit of time and I'll massage her hands for her. And in that moment, she wasn't completely aware of what was going on, her memories coming and going. But we just, for about 10, 15 minutes, I just put some hand cream on her hands and massaged her hands for her and it was just a beautiful personal moment and as I was reading this and preparing I just thought of that it really was just between mum and me me massaging her hands no one else was there just a beautiful personal act between her and me and a memory that I will take with me for a long time and it just makes me think how much more personal then is this act between this woman and Jesus on her knees, hair displayed, oil, tears, using that all to wipe his feet, just so intimate and personal. It shows a deep personal love that she has for him. And Jesus actually says in verse 47, therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So she loved much, that deep love. Her sins were forgiven as she showed Jesus that deep personal love. As we come to land, the last verses we read in this passage for me are a highlight. And that is because we see the response of Jesus. So this woman, she was sacrificial. She was vulnerable. Her attitudes were personal. But we see a beautiful response of Jesus and he too becomes personal in his response and speaks directly to her and her alone. Jesus offered extravagant forgiveness. In verse 48, then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then again in verse 50, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I I notice how he says it to the woman. In all the other interactions that he had, He's talking to the Pharisees, teaching him a lesson. And I'm sure he's aware of what's happening. But in that moment, he used it as a teaching moment to the Pharisee and the other people in the room first. But then in this moment, he looks to her. And he is speaking to her, your sins are forgiven. I just love that. He, he does the teaching and the outward thing, but then he looks right at her, into her face, eye to eye, face to face. Your sins are forgiven. He says to her, And it's just a beautiful picture of that interaction between Jesus and the woman. She is now free. Free from all that she carried into that room. The pain, the heartache, the feeling of unforgiveness, her unworthiness. She had her broken heart. And suddenly we see extravagant forgiveness and she's forgiven. She's free. 
I, when we get to this part of the, the story, I just can't help but think it's almost like a, a TV series that you're watching and you get to the end of one episode and it's, you're left on this cliffhanger and you just can't wait to get to the next episode. And I see that here in this story because we're left in this beautiful moment. But here in the, in, the, in the story, we move on to the next part and we don't really get to see the, out, the rest of the story for this particular woman in, in Luke. Yet that was just such an intimate, life-changing moment, don't you think? Face to face with her saviour, demonstrating humility, vulnerability, sacrifice and a personal connection with her saviour and he forgives her and she is free and then what? We're at the end of the, the, the story. But I just, I just think it's something that we can hang on to and know that this personal interaction with Jesus, it does leave us free. And we know that that's not the end of the story. I see through this beautiful exchange that this word repentance, it's not harsh, is it? It has a beautiful picture of um, restoration, humility, forgiveness and freedom. So back to my first question, how are you in, in regards of being vulnerable, sacrificial and personal when it comes to saying sorry? And now I'm not talking about you with other people. Let's think about this question in light of how you are with God, with Jesus, your saviour. He came, he died for you, he loves you. So how are you going in regards to being vulnerable, vulnerable before your saviour, sacrificial before your saviour, personal with your saviour? I believe that Jesus wants all of us to know that any one of us, no matter who we are and what we have done, that we can come personally to him and receive his extravagant forgiveness and love. God's word shows us over and over, doesn't it, the amount of times that people come to him with that attitude that, and his response is always love and forgiveness and acceptance. Humility and vulnerability and sacrifice should be at the core of who we are. Because it is from that place that God can work in our hearts. So what can you do to grow in these areas? I think it really is as easy as asking God to help you. Right? To ask God, please God, help me to be humble before you, to pray that you can have humility. A very scary prayer to pray. I, so often you do that and then you end up in one of the most embarrassing moments of your life. But it's good for us. The only way too is to be humble before our Saviour. Pray and ask God to show us humility. And the only way we can have this is going back to God and recognising who he is. I love that with the woman as she came, she knew that he had something else. There was something different about him. She knew he was her Saviour. Wasn't just a teacher, the Pharisees thought he was. But he, he was her saviour. He is creator. We are the created. Now, she, I want you to write these in big words, okay? He is the creator. We are the created. And once we start looking at God and his greatness, his holiness, his power, we ourselves, we start to fall into insignificance. We look to him, who he is, then that will soon put us in our place and we won't see ourselves as that important. The woman that came to Jesus with an understanding of who he was, her saviour, 
it then helped her to see who she was, a sinner. When we recognise who God is, we can begin that road of humility. Then what can we do as a church to grow in this? Now, we've talked about it being personable. As a church, I would love to see that we can be a church that is growing in humility and vulnerability and sacrifice. It says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7, it says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. He will exalt you in due time. You can cast your care upon him. He calls. He cares for you. So we don't have to be afraid of humility. So pray that we won't be afraid of humility as a church. I think we can do that, can't we? We can come into a place and feel that there's judgment. We can feel that there's skepticism. We can feel that people are looking at us and thinking things of us. And it can stop us from being vulnerable and sacrificial and humble before our saviour. Yet if we can have that stance of what the woman had, we can enter any space, especially church, especially in front of our church family to have that sense of humility. We know we can be safe. God cares for us, he loves us. Let's take it another step. Wouldn't it be such a good thing if each Sunday as we meet together, we all come with that heart of humility and we can then be in that perfect place to meet with Jesus, but also to be able to learn from each other. And I believe that as a church, if we come to God like this, with this attitude, we will see significant, extravagant change in this place and in our people, don't you think? If we can come into this church building on Sundays with our family, with humility, we will see extravagant change in us as a people. We will see hearts healed. We will see people freed from sin. We will see people emotionally and physically healed. We will see chains broken. We will see people coming to know Christ. We will see family members come to know Christ. We will see relationships restored, more than what we can imagine when we come with that heart of humility. Now I'm going to shift gears slightly as I close. I'm going to invite Alicia up to the platform. Now you may wonder why I'm doing this, but this is a beautiful um, segue into something that we've been talking about as, as a leadership in that area of humility and prayer. And um, so as a pastoral team, we've actually been quite excited about the discussions we've been having in regards to to prayer, so we can just shake it out a bit and shift gears. So, Alicia, who are you? Welcome up here. <laughs> Which, firstly, let's explain to everyone who you are. So, let's. Okay. Well, I've been you. at um, the church for about it's probably been about twelve months, maybe a little longer now, and um, I've been a Christian for a long time since I was seventeen. So I'm giving away my age, but that was 22 years ago when I gave my life to the Lord. <laughs> and um, I just love Jesus and I love his church. Mm -hmm. Thank a, you. Yeah. And she's got three lovely boys. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I'm a mum of three boys and they're here somewhere at the back there. I'm taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I can see that. All, if you know Alicia, you'll know she does love Jesus. It does come out of her heart and permeates around the people around you but as a leadership we have as a pastoral team we've been really excited about meeting Alicia because we have been really 
um, wanting to see the ministry or prayer ministry grow in our church. And we have seen some changes with Encounter Night and the prayer before our services and things like that. But we really wanted to see, God, what else do you have for us? And, um, and so getting to know Alicia, we just started to learn that she too had that same heart. And so would you like to share a bit about that? Yeah, well, um, prayer ministry um, or having that time after church services where people can come and receive prayer, I think, and in my experience, is one of the most um, intricate parts of a service, intrinsic parts of a service, where God can minister to his people. A lot of you will have experienced, I've experienced it today, during the worship, during the preaching of this beautiful message, the Lord is speaking to us, he's ministering to our hearts. The Lord wants to minister to his people. He is our shepherd, we are his sheep, and we're to come to him so that he can feed us, he can give us that drink, that spiritual drink, he can give us that spiritual food, he wants to touch us, he wants to go into places of our heart that only he can. And having that prayer at the end is another platform for Jesus to do that to his people. I love it how Kathy said that, you know, it's about that one-on-one, face-to-face time with the Lord. Now, we can have that at home, we can have that um, during the week, one-on-one time with the pastor, in your life group, but having it in a church service where a place is created for the Holy Spirit to come and touch his people. And also, you know, there's something about that corporate worship, that enjoined faith of the the community of believers coming together. You've heard a convicting message. The worship of the saints has been filling the atmosphere. In that atmosphere, it's very transformative and powerful. It's a place where the Holy Spirit, through our enjoined faith, can really touch us deeply. So we want... Um, people to feel like they can come and they can receive from the Lord and they can have that face-to-face time with him. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah, and that's been a prayer for a long time to see that happen because we can hear a message, can't we? We can hear it and go, yes, I agree. But just that next step of of responding, and um, I see it with the woman at the feet of Jesus. It really was a response. It wasn't just knowing who he was, but it was her response. And we can do that here. And I think, I think God does something special when we do it in a vulnerable way in front of people. Like it can be easy to be home on your knees before God in private, but I just really believe that when we put ourselves in a vulnerable position, that, that God does something different and he can. It's, you know, saying I'm, I'm free. Um, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we don't need to fear what, what people are thinking is between us and God. The other aspect of it too, Alicia, is that it's not only just between you and God, but it allows an opportunity for other gifts to be used in this place as well. And people who, who are just um, passionate about prayer, passionate about speaking words of life into people's hearts. And it's an opportunity for that to happen as well. And, um, and we're really excited to see what God does. And, um, and I just think having that attitude of humility, sacrifice and vulnerability and um, that personal connection with Jesus, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what God does here. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. And um, just the invitation for people who want to be a part of this prayer ministry um, is, is there, come and see me. Um, 
I'll grab your details, you can grab mine and we can exchange thoughts about that. Um, but we want to do this in a really safe way. We want to do this in a, a way that's exercising wisdom and yeah. we want to do it in an appropriate way where people can grow in these things. To, we can grow as a church together and learn together in a healthy way. So Beautiful. Thank you. Exciting. Let's give her a hand. So you may see evidence of that growing in the next few weeks, but the, the challenge for us this morning is how can we go deeper in that closer, more personal relationship with Jesus? How can we do that? Yes, we can at home. We can in our own time. We can with a, with a friend that we trust, but we can also too in a public setting, just like this woman did. And, um, and I just know God's heart is to meet with you personally, meet with you face to face as you surrender. And one thing, just to make clear too, when, when we are talking about having a space for the front, we, yes, we've been talking about a woman who was a sinner. Firstly, we are all sinners, aren't we? We've, we've all fallen short of what God wants of us. But this space here is not just about that. It's not just about confessing sin. It can be for anything. It could be to stand in the gap of someone else that you're praying for. It could be coming for healing. It could be coming, you just don't even know how to put it into words. You're just feeling a bit blur and you just would love some prayer. It, it just, I just want that to be clear and that if we see someone coming down the front and we don't automatically go, oh, what horrible sin have they committed? It, it's not about that. It's coming to meet with Jesus face to face. a beautiful opportunity to do that. Okay, let me just pray for all of you and we'll finish up when Rach can lead us. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much that we can come and meet you with vulnerability, with sacrifice and personally. You love us. You love us so deeply and your forgiveness is extravagant. I pray for every single person in our congregation this morning that they will just be aware of your incredible love for them. They'll be aware that they can come to you and you will just open your arms and embrace we love you, Jesus. We love you for everything you've done for us and we praise your holy name. Amen.